0: Section 15 of Baled Hay by Bill Nye. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Something Too Much of This The Pawnee Republican of the 13th innocently and impertinently remarks, Fred Nye, father of Bill Nye, the humorist, is the editor of the Omaha Republican. Vice Datus Brooks, Gone to Europe. Omaha Herald Will the press of the country please provide us with a few more parents? Old Jim Nye and several other valuable fathers of ours have already cloned the golden elevator. We now feel like a comparative orphan. The time was when we could hold a reunion of our parents and have a pretty big time. But it's a mighty lonely thing to stand on the shores of time and see your parents whittled down to three or four young men no bigger than Fred Nye of the Republican COLOR BLINDNESS The paper world says there's no use talking. The newspaper men of the press are today becoming more and more color blind. In other words, they have lost that subtle flavor of description for which the public yearns. They have missed that wonderful spice and aroma of narration, which is the life of all newspaper work. We do not take this to ourselves at all, but we desire before we say one word to make a few remarks the boomerang has been charged with airing on the other side and coloring things a little too high. Sir Garnet Wolseley, in a private letter to us during the late Egyptian assault and battery, stated that if we aired at all, it was on the highly colored side. There is an excuse for lack of spice and all that sort of thing in the newspaper world. The men who write for our dailies as a rule have to write about two miles per day, and they ought not to be kicked if it is not as interesting as "Uncle Tom's Cabin" or "Leaves of Grass." We have done some nine hundred miles of writing ourselves during our short, sharp, and decisive career, and we know what we are talking about. Those things we wrote at a time when we were spreading our graceful characters over ten acres of paper per day were not thrilling; they did not catch the public eye but were just naturally consigned to oblivion's bottomless maw. Read that last sentence twice. It will do you no harm. The public, it seems to us, has created a false standard of merit for the newspaper. People take a big daily and pay $10 per year for it because it is the biggest paper in the world, and then don't read a quarter of it. They are doing a smart thing, no doubt, but it is killing the feverish young men with throbbing brains who are doing the work. Would you consider that a large pair of shoes or a large wife should be sought for just because you can get more material for the same price? Not much, Marianne. Excellence is what we seek, not bulk. Write better things and less of them, and you will do better, and the public will be pleased to see the change. Should anyone who reads these words be suffering from an insatiable hunger for a paper that aims at elegance of diction, high-toned logic, and pink-cambric sentiment, at a moderate price, he will do well to call at this office and look over our goods, samples sent free on application, to any part of the United States or Europe. We refer to Herbert Spencer, the Laramie National Bank, and the postmaster of this city, as to our reputation for truth and veracity. A little previous Speaking of elections and returns brings back to our memory the time when it was pretty close in a certain congressional district in Wisconsin where W.T. Price is now putting up a job on the Democrats. In those days, returns didn't come in by telegraph, but on horseback and on foot, and it was annoying to wait for figures by which to determine the result. At Hudson, the politicians had made a pretty close estimate, but were waiting, one evening after election, at a saloon on Buckeye Street for something definite from Eau Claire County. The session was very dull, and to cheer up the little Spartan hand, someone suggested that old Judge Weatherby ought to set him up. Judge Weatherby was a staunch old Democrat and had rigidly treated himself for twenty years "'and just as rigidly refused to treat anybody else. "'The result was that he had secured a vigorous bloom on his own nose, "'but had never put the glass to his neighbor's lips. "'He intimated on this occasion, however, "'that if he could get encouraging news from Eau Claire for the Democrats, "'he would turn loose. "'The party waited till midnight and had just decided to go home "'when a travel-worn horseman rode up to the door. "'He was very reticent.' and he was a stranger. No one seemed to want to open up a conversation with him, till at last Judge Weatherby, who couldn't keep the great question of politics out of his mind, asked him what part of the country he had come from. Just got in from Eau Claire County, was the reply. How did Eau Claire County go, was the judge's next question. Oh, I don't pay attention to no politics, but they told me it went 453 majority for the Democrats. Thereupon, the judge threw his hat in the air for the first and last time in his life, treated the entire crowd of Republicans and Democrats alike. It was very late when he went home, also very late when he got downtown the next day. When he did come down, he was surprised to find a Republican brass band out, and the news all over the city that the Republican candidate had been elected by several hundred majority. In the afternoon, he learned that Hod Taylor, now clergyman of Marseille, had hired a tramp to ride into the Buckeye Saloon the previous evening and report as stated, in order to bring about a good state of feeling on the judge's part. Judge Weatherby, since that time, is regarded as the most skeptical Democrat in that congressional district, "'and even if he were to be assured over and over again "'that his party was victorious, he would still doubt. "'It is such things as these that go a long way "'toward encouraging a feeling of distrust between the parties "'and causes politicians to be looked upon with great mistrust. "'Although Mr. Taylor is now in France "'attending to the affairs of his government "'and trying to become familiar with the French language,' He often pauses in his work as the memory of this little incident comes over his mind, and a hot tear falls on the report he is making out to send on to the Secretary of State at Washington. Can it be that his hard heart is at last touched with remorse? Is Dueling Murder? Somebody wants to know whether dueling is murder, and we reply in clarion tones that, it depends largely on how fatal it is. Dueling with monogram notepaper at a distance of twelve hundred yards is not murder. Heap gone. Another landmark of Laramie has gone. Another wreck has been strewn upon the sands of time. Another gay bark has gone to pieces upon the cruel rocks and above the broken spars and jib-boom and foretop gallant royal main brace and spanker-boom euchre deck, the cold, damp tide is moaning. We refer to L.W. Schroeder, who recently left this place incognito, also in debt, largely to various people of this gay and festive metropolis. Laramie has been the home at various times of some of the most classical deadbeats of modern times. But Schroeder was the noblest, the most grand and colossal of deadbeats that has ever visited our shores. Born with unusual abilities in this direction, he early learned how to enlarge and improve upon the talents thus bestowed upon him, and here in Laramie, he soon won a place at the front as a man who purchased everything and paid for nothing. He had a way of approaching the grocer and the merchant that was well calculated to deceive, and he did, in several instances, make representations, which we now learn were false. He was, by profession, a carpenter and joiner, having learned the art while cutting cordwood on the Missouri bottoms near Omaha for the Collins brothers. Here he rapidly won his way to the front rank by erecting some of the most commanding architectural ruins of which modern wood assassination can boast. He would take a hatchet and a buck saw and carve out his fortune anywhere in the world, and it wouldn't cost him a cent. He filled this whole Trans-Missouri country with his fame and his promissory notes, and then skinned out and left us here to mourn. Goodbye, Schroeder. Wherever you go, we will remember you and hope that you may succeed in piling up a monument of indebtedness as you did here. You were industrious and untiring in your efforts to become a great financial wreck, and success has crowned your efforts. We will not grudge you the glory that coagulates about your massive brow. The Editorial Lamp there is something unique about an editor's lamp that enables almost anyone to select it from a large number of other lamps. It is sui generis and extremely original. The large metropolitan papers use gas in the editorial rooms and make up for the loss of the kerosene lamp by furnishing their offices with some other article of furniture that is equally attractive. The boomerang lamp, especially during the election, has had its intensity wonderfully softened and toned down through various causes. You can take most any other lamp and trim the wick so that it will burn squarely and not smoke, but the editorial lamp is peculiar in this respect. The wick gets so it will burn straight when you find that it does not burn the oil. Then you get it filled and put in a new wick. Experimenting with this, you get your fingers perfumed with coal oil and spill some in your lap. Then you turn it up so you can see, and as you get a flow of thought, you look up to find that you have smutted up your chimney, and you murmur something that you are glad no one is near to hear. When our life record is made up and handed down to posterity, if a generous people will kindly overlook the remarks we have made over our lamp, and also the little extemporaneous statements made at picnics, we will do as much for the public and make this thing as near even as possible. End of section 15